podcast for the lost arts reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen this is dan baltic and this is matt pegas and this is episode 62 with none other than the uh the pastor of the cowboy church <laughs> jl Mackey, a uh, a friend of the pod a writer on our side of twitter he um recently as i just alluded to in the uh, the tagline, wrote a novella called The Cowboy Church. It's very good. It's uh, Southern noir, if I might be so bold. And uh, the cover is by uh, Michael Vinson. Very good cover. Very, you've probably seen it around on Twitter. And uh, yeah, welcome to the pod, JL. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I've been uh, looking forward to it for a while. Excellent. Oh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say at the forefront, you have just launched along with T.R. Hudson. I I think that uh, Prudentialist is involved in some way. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe he's just yeah. a friend, a promoter. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Double Dealer Literary Magazine, which, oh, and uh, Sandbatch, of course, he's involved, right? Uh, to a small degree, yes. Okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is a new literary magazine, which we're excited about here. It's, you know, great to see, you know, guys on our side of Twitter getting together and, you know, launching new literary ventures. And this one is actually a continuation of an existing literary magazine called Double Dealer, which uh, discontinued publication in like 1940 or something, right? Yeah, I believe it was the late 20s, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even earlier. Yeah, it didn't last very long. Almost 100 years after. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, welcome to the pod, JL. It's, uh... Mm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad we're... I'm glad to have you on, JL. Obviously, you've been someone who's been part of our orbit for a really long time, so this feels overdue. <laughs> so, yeah, why don't you, uh, you know, take us into a little bit your um perspective and you know in the notes that matt and i discussed we obviously want to talk about southern fiction and you um you know you're kind of and correct me if i'm putting words in your mouth but kind of taking up the mantle of you know reclaiming the southern gothic from uh, its current uh fallen state in contemporary culture vis-a-vis um the crawdads business <laughs> so uh yeah yeah tell us um tell us about 
the state of Southern literature and your plans to resurrect it? Well, it, it's probably a little egotistical on my part to say I'm going to single-handedly do this. Um, I will say that I'll try my best to do my part and try and revive it. But yeah, a gripe that I've had for a long time that I've I've written about kind of at length here and there is that uh, Southern literature specifically, but also you could probably make the argument that literature in general has kind of lost its balls. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, and with As respect to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I kind of honed in on, on Southern fiction just because that's, that's what I've always enjoyed reading the most, and that's what I write, so that's kind of what I fixated on. But it's just, it seemed that over the last, I would say at least probably 15 to 20 years although there's there were some writers who were who were still to one degree or another trying to keep it alive into the early 2000s like harry cruz from william right. Gay, people like that um but it's it got feel like it got dramatically diluted and weaker and it didn't have the kind of grit that made it noteworthy to begin with and yeah. i found that really mm-hmm. frustrating and it's yeah and just it, it most most of that literature devolved into fiction that takes place in the South rather than fiction yeah. that's fundamentally Southern, and aesthetically obviously... Southern. I thought that was a really good point in your Substack article on it that it becomes this mere backdrop um, <clears throat> for for a, you know it's kind of a subgenre within the general face of uh, I guess mainstream facing MFA produced type literature that we talk about a lot on the show you know the sort of stuff that's obviously uh engineered and marketed towards like npr moms basically and like oprah book club type of vibe but it's like a subgenre of that that's set in the south you know maybe there's a little bit of an expectation that like race relations will be bro- like talked about in some capacity but it's basically just as you as you as you point out in your article you know literature set in the south as opposed to having any of that southern or southern gothic aesthetic and i do see that happening for sure yeah yeah i would co-sign on that now how do you feel as a you know you're a southern guy right you you grew up and and currently still you know live in the south right yeah well <laughs> i'm originally or not, from... not to dox you or anything just no, you know, generally <laughs> pretty poor southern country yeah i've lived uh uh in alabama for a total of what five or six years now before that was the military North Carolina mm-hmm. and then I'm originally from the very hillbilly portion of Florida okay so not Disneyland but yeah the, yeah the scrub and the alligator portion the, mm-hmm. uh the bog beef portion yeah yes absolutely um so yeah I mean you as you know a, a southern gentleman southern guy how do you feel when you see stuff like the crawdads nonsense and the, the, you know, NPR, as Matt said, the NPR crowd, like eating <laughs> it up. And like, this is, you know, for, you know, people who are, you know, in the coastal areas, like me and Matt, um, you know, the other, you know, the, the NPR moms or whoever are on the subway, this is their conception <laughs> of the South. It's where the crawdads, uh, you know, fart or, <laughs> <going on> <laughs> <there>. <laughs> i mean it doesn't 
I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't really surprise me that it just it's become kind of itchy or like a acute thing for Yankees or or coastal people to um, kind of like look at for five minutes and then turn away from because there's it doesn't have anything to offer to them. Yeah. So it it it, it loses like any real cultural depth for those yeah. kinds of people. So I guess it doesn't really surprise me that that sentiment makes its way into art as well. And there's, I mean, you could, you could count off endless movies that make tropes, absolute tropes of Southerners or, or backwoods people or, or mountain people, especially like the Appalachians. So, I mean, I feel, felt like it was a matter of time before that found its way into fiction from sentiment and film. Yeah. I feel like for better or worse, obviously for worse, the um the narratives that the media loves to push um they they find a perfect home in southern fiction be it you know racial narratives be it uh sexual narratives it's just like this perfect setting for them to both kind of push their agenda and extract like the um you know a lot of kind of storytelling and um other potential from the setting from the you know the area without actually engaging with the you know native styles of the south and in, in fact of course without engaging with like the actual like you know truth of you know what's going on on the ground mm -hmm. yeah i mean it makes for a it makes for a really easy excuse me scapegoat because no no one in alabama or or uh you know the red hills of georgia are going to bother to rebuke some stupid uh, Washington Post article about how we're all racists or inbred yeah. or whatever. Like we just we frankly don't care. So it yeah. makes for a really easy target. That's not going to fire any shots back. And great Southern fiction of which there obviously is, uh, we were discussing in the show notes, Matt and I, and I'm sure you'd agree, um, you know, obviously Faulkner, um, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, even going so far as, I mean, well, I don't know if we characterize, uh, John Kennedy tool, uh, but I mean, he is from New Orleans. That's kind of mm -hmm. the South, right? Uh, Walker Percy. And, uh, you know, of course, um, I mean, this is going to, cause I know he's your favorite, one of your favorite writers is Harry Cruz, a Southerner. Yeah. He was, he was born and raised in, uh, rural Georgia before he moved okay. to, uh, yeah. Florida. You know, I was going to say when you brought up the Scrubs and Alligator part of Florida, that's basically where Cruz lived as well, right? Yeah. Thank you, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, um, that's, that's in the, what, what you call the panhandle? <laughs> well, the, the panhandle is, is Florida and Alabama and a little mm -hmm. bit of Mississippi. He's, I don't remember exactly where Bacon County is, but I don't think it's very far over the line. So it's, I believe it's Southern Georgia. Yeah. So interesting. Similar kind of landscape, yeah. Similar landscape, yeah. No, I haven't read much Cruise, but I've always um always meant to, and you definitely make a compelling argument to do so. My my impression has always been, you know, he he really carries that southern or southern gothic aesthetic, but also in um I don't want to say a postmodern package because that has a bad connotation for a lot of people in our sphere, but you know, very like up to date sort of depictions of violence uh, on a sort of street level, or that be I mean, again, I haven't read much of it, but. 
Because I've heard uh, him mention the same breath as like William Burroughs, even, which maybe that's a maybe that's a weird bedfellows, but there's maybe a similar like delve into again, I haven't read it, so you tell me. But I, he he's he's in, he's enjoyed, you know, by by a, a, some a lot of people who I wouldn't think would be reading Southern literature, like, oh yeah, Harry Cruz is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Yeah, I would I could see that. Um maybe a little bit. Um his work's really interesting to me. I mean, I could talk about him all day, obviously, but he he definitely has uh, some novels that are like absolutely like preeminent Southern Gothic and some are less so, um, I believe, all of which take place in the South. But there is definitely like Southern Gothic mixed in with like some some absurdist dark comedy kind of things. That's some of which are absolutely um, like commentaries on modern culture. Like there's one. uh one of his books called The Mulching of America, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. is this man works for this giant corporation, I believe in Florida, and he's a salesman, an underperforming salesman. Well, they're just turned into mulch. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's so, it's yeah. definitely a, an interesting weaving of like Southern culture meets, you know, in, industrialization or commercialization. Yeah, with, like, that's what I was Atomization to... mm-hmm. of modern culture. Absolutely. Yeah, no, so I got to read more of that because that sounds fantastic. You know, I like a lot of the writers you've cited, like Faulkner and and, Flanner O'Connor was like huge early sort of influence on me as a writer and as a reader. And I like that Southern Gothic style a lot. But um, I also like, you know, Don DeLillo and even like David Foster Wallace to a certain extent. I like that um, satire and sort of postmodern poking at um, modern industrial society. Uh, And also obviously talking about atomization in the realm of someone like Wellback. Uh, it kind of sounds like Harry Cruz, as as you just articulated, does uh, bridge that gap between the Southern Gothic, Southern style uh, with that sort of modern, um, you know, preoccupation with 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 these problems that, that do affect the South, but also affect everyone else as well. And kind of getting this specifically Southern take on that, I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I remember on the carousel, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you told Isaac that J.L. Mackey is a character from a Harry Cruz novel. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. It's, <laughs> um, uh, Jolon Mackey was the main character of Cruz's book, A Feast of Snakes. Okay. And he's, uh, you know, much like the, uh, the main character from, uh, Cowboy Church, Ezra. He's a, uh, of an irascible fellow is he not he, he is for <laughs> sure he is he he meets a little more violent end i won't say explicitly because that's a great book with a great ending but he is at, definitely at his wits end and he goes out the only way he knows how to i think i remember on the the pod the the carousel it's something akin to a falling down scenario the the movie falling down or am I just inventing that in my head? I'm uh, not like a familiar. Guy, I'm not a guy familiar snaps. with falling down. Okay, like falling down is about a guy who just like a working man who snaps and picks up a you know automatic uh, rifles and kind of uh, hmm. goes on a you know low key rampage. <laughs> uh, maybe I feel like I've seen clips of this around on Twitter. Some Michael guy Douglas. like. Yes, yeah. yes. And he has like an RPG and a kid's telling him how to use it. Yeah. Um, maybe 
maybe not to that degree, um, <laughs> but I guess a similar sentiment. Yes. Yes. I see. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> like, uh, you know, literary nod in your handle there. I, you know, I think many of us, uh, yeah. Is there, this is, um, maybe this is a silly and irrelevant question, but I'm sure you're aware because, you know, when people are Googling you, there's also a philo like an Australian, probably not that interesting philosopher named J.L. Mackey. Is obviously your name's not based off that. Do you know if Harry Cruz was aware or if that is that just a total, it's probably just a coincidence. I mean, it's, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, I spell differently, but yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, just shoot shooting off the hip i would say probably not as far as i know um cruz wasn't big into philosophy or like reading right strictly speaking philosophy i know he was big into classics and like girta and stuff like that yeah but... i i think mackie's very i'm not trying to diss this guy i only remember him vaguely from college or whatever but i think he's sort of very analytical not super interesting you know he's not Nietzsche which I could I imagine maybe Harry Cruz might read but uh yeah it's probably just a coincidence maybe an irrelevant topic but I, I'm sure others have wondered it because you know if you're kind of google you know you're trying to find your Substack, mm. you'll get a bunch of stuff about this guy first <laughs> but yeah oh this is also just kind of a one-off but I'm curious have you ever read the Harry Cruz novel Florida Frenzy is, is that, that Hold on, let me look it up. I just remember Frenzy, hearing... I think, is Tim Dorsey. Oh, never mind. I'll cut that out of the recording. I just, I, <laughs> I, I hadn't read it. I associated with Harry Cruz, and I had, while not having read it, I thought it was a, a fantastic name for a novel. Sounds like nice. a spring break party. Yeah, exactly. Frenzy. Yeah. I saw that. Well, it says TV. Harry Cruz, 1982, but I realize he. 14 he essays and articles and three short stories. <laughs> so he's he's prolific right quite yeah yeah sorry. um no i have not read that but i've read all of his all of his novels and i have one or two of his uh collections of publications essays that he wrote for playboy and stuff like that but yeah interesting. i have not read that one specifically uh, yeah i'm literally just judging a book by the cover i just thought one, like <laughs> wow what a name and that seems to sum up an aesthetic right like <laughs> for sure yeah yes So to uh, jump into Southern Gothic, um, what would you say is kind of, because I, I think on the carousel, you talked about this a bit, the definition in your mind uh, of Southern Noir, Southern Gothic, and how does that uh, differentiate from like classic Noir tales are like generally, I think of Los Angeles uh, Raymond Chandler type, you know, detective in a, a morally gray world. But there's there's something interesting about, you know, when that kind of moral landscape and storytelling is set in the South. There's, you know, at least in, you know, the our, you know, literary and film history, a sense of kind of like, I and I think you talked about this on the carousel, how they're all uh, kind of uh, the like the shadowy forces are all kind of like run by the same people in the town. Like there's a secret that the the town is kind of founded on and uh, the, you know, the the good guy, the antihero, whoever is kind of up against the the machine in the town. 
does that strike a bell? Bring a bell? Uh, perhaps a little. I would say that the um, I I would say Southern Gothic is largely differentiated from maybe just Southern literature or noir and the fact that it is specifically Southern, which is obviously kind of a nebulous way to describe something. But yeah. um, like I ranted about in my Substack post, I, it's, I would say it's, <clears throat> it's, it's Gothic for, or noir for the same reason anything else is, which is that it concerns crime, poverty, mm. uh, the downtrodden, the grotesque, whether mm. that's like spiritual or physical or whatever. Um, in addition to being like particularly Southern. So dealing with um, like agricultural cultures or kind of pastoral uh, stories, um, things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, so it's the, you know, that kind of universe just in a Southern setting and I, I mean, this is kind of splitting hairs, but what what do you think then is kind of the difference between Southern Gothic and um, and noir? Probably the presence or absence of crime and a kind of like you know thriller uh, literary structure, I would think, because like Flannery O'Connor, I would I would characterize her as Southern Gothic. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, obviously there's, I mean, in some of her stories, there is, of course, the, you know, uh, literary device or element of crime and those themes, but it's, you know, you would be hard pressed to call her a kind of a detective writer. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say stories like hers and, and mine and maybe some of Cruz's stories are or like less about the the crime it, itself or the the injustice itself per se and and more so about the maybe you could say the psychological how it affects the victim how the victim decides to deal with it or an exact revenge maybe and things like that it's less about the yeah like the like the primary issue itself and 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 more about the secondary and tertiary shit that it causes and yeah the, the like the psychological sort of effects the internalization of the yeah yeah makes sense. Yeah. yeah and we can see that in uh to you know segue to the cowboy church your novella it's you know on one level a very uh straightforward crime story it's um to not give any spoilers about a um you know, a man who finds that his um, his estranged father and sister have been poisoned by the drinking water on their farm. And uh, there's shadowy forces at play who have caused this. And he um, sets off on a course to, uh, you know, a vengeance to correct the uh, to, you know, avenge the wrongs against his family. And so that is very much like on, on the surface level, um, that's a thriller plot. That's a detective in some respects, a kind of, you know, mystery detective novel. Uh, but you, you do really get into the head of Ezra, the main character who um, suffers from uh, a kind of crippling um, a pill addiction 
caused by some uh, form of arthritis, I think, which um, inflames his body. And so he's kind of like throughout the novel in this kind of like haze that's uh, penetrated by moments of kind of like clarity and action. And yeah, so we see a lot into the emotional effects of crime, uh, the crimes committed against his family on Ezra and his, you know, ultimate decision to uh, seek vengeance, which, you know, very much is plays into the, um, uh, I guess what, you know, I, and this is maybe um, getting presumptuous or whatever, but the metaphysics that our side of Twitter is trying to like promulgate is, you know, generally more of a uh, right-wing kind of defensive tradition, defensive family, um, basic morality. So this is like a story that kind of dovetails with the moral and metaphysical framework that some people on our side of Twitter are trying to, uh, you know, enshrined as the ethos of this, this writing movement, if you will. Uh, to your first point, I would say, yeah, the, the, the crime that's perpetrated against him or, and his family is, as far as my intentions went, primarily just served as a, a backdrop or a, a framework on which to place all the things that I I set out to talk about, which is like this weird obligation you have to family despite maybe fucking hating them from time to time, yeah. how that like that that stone in your stomach like never goes away and you have to do something about it you can't just ignore it um especially when it's something as extreme as that so it's i i, I didn't intend to i didn't set out to write like a mystery or a crime or detective type thing it's really just was something to lay the rest of it on top of that made sense is reasonable is believable to a degree mm-hmm. um yeah. and things like that and as far as the like it being right wing that also wasn't my intention to like to sit down and expressly explicitly write a a right wing piece of fiction but Mm -hmm. i just um that ultimately it was just something that resonated with me yeah and it it um it just makes for a better story at the end of the day not to be like too reductionist about it but that's that makes yeah. for a that makes for a good story. It's more it's more resonant. It it, it yeah. speaks to you a little bit more than someone who is I don't know falls into like individualism and 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 withdraw, being withdrawn into themselves and being defeated. Yeah, that just makes for a fake and gay story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And exhibiting like those kind of masculine virtues, like yeah, these things do. It's not a political thing. It's not an ideological stance so much as they typically make better stories. You know when when one exhibits the kind of uh boldness and um dedication and and loyalty that your protagonist ultimately exhibits um you know it's 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 part of part of what makes a good story so so i agree with you there and i did want to comment like uh kind of what we were talking about with harry cruz earlier i think your novella um succeeds on that front in being both very southern but also um you know delving into these bigger sort of corporate tinged issues and atomization um that you know affect 
not just the whole country, but obviously like, you know, you get it in Europe with someone like Wellbeck. Um, you know, it's kind of the the theme of our time in a lot of ways. It's why people gravitate towards delicious tacos is that theme of atomization. I like how you really brought it together with um, you know, very southern setting, very southern characters. Um, definitely succeeds on that front. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. And uh, you know, to expand on what you just said vis-a-vis um the you know motivation in writing it and i I think that kind of dovetails with uh, you know something we've long been saying i think lomez started you know may have said it first uh that we're looking for right-wing authors writing making art Mm -hmm. um as opposed to like artists or authors making right-wing art and yeah, just like, you know, the essentially what you need is people honestly telling their stories and, you know, it'll be a good story regardless, so long as you're, you know, actually that the story is the most important thing, the first thing you're trying to do. And that certainly seems to be the case here with Cowboys Church. I, I would definitely, I would definitely agree. I don't, I mean, some people seem to enjoy it and that's all they seem to be interested in or or want to read, but I'm, I'm rather tired of overtly political fiction. If I want yeah. to read politics, I'll go read the news. I want to, <laughs> I want a story. I want a good story first and foremost, if there's politics yeah, in it. Absolutely. Sure, but that's like, and I, that's, I can all, go uh, ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's what we offer that the mainstream doesn't offer because the mainstream is obviously you turn on Netflix is politics first. It's their politics. And, you know, if you, want to actually read or watch a, you know a movie that is apolitical that is in today that's like a political act to want to see something yeah. that isn't uh you know shoving someone's agenda down your uh, your throat and uh yeah i mean i would say like you know cowboy church um yeah it's just a straightforward kind of revenge story and that's you know to the extent that that is political that's to say kind of that like the most basic human tendencies are political which i suppose they are in a certain sense but you know this uh we we have to set um you know guideposts somewhere and yeah i would say this is not really a political story it's a personal story i mean not necessarily personally i'm sure it didn't happen to you you're no uh, yeah you haven't been to in too many uh although i was about to say you haven't been in too many gunfights uh not to uh but you you are a veteran sir are you not yes yeah and um, to what extent oh go on yeah no i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say to what extent does uh that inform your fiction if at all i wouldn't say that it informs it at all okay no hmm. I i was never I was never in a combat role or a combat situation, so I never shot anyone or got shot at. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, good. <laughs> you, uh, you might not be on the pod today. Touche. Hmm. Um, yeah, another kind of interesting part, uh, which, you know, naturally I kind of thought, um, you know, that we all do to an extent right from personal experience. So the kind of like constant joint pain that Ezra is in 
I thought, well, JL's a veteran, probably got, you know, shot up or something, and he's uh, in, uh, you know, a lot of pain. Uh, but that, you know, I guess is not the, the case. You just, uh, like, chose the um, arthritis as a kind of um, um, literary, you know, struggle or device to, you know, create this, you know, tension and drama within Ezra. Yeah, I know. I don't have. He, um, I gave Ezra rheumatoid arthritis, so yeah. so an autoimmune problem that just gets worse with age and is very debilitating and requires a lot of medication, etc. But um, I know someone who was uh, diagnosed with RA um, in their thirties, and it like it wrecked them, um, and it, I mean, it wrecked them physically, obviously, because it's 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 painful and debilitating, but also. Uh, began to affect like their mood the way they interact oh, of with course, yeah. they're in pain and you know they become more ornery or difficult to deal with or they're just in a frankly in a bad mood more yeah uh, absolutely more frequently and i was like well that's that's interesting the way that being in constant pain can 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 like influence right yeah can can sour the you know life beyond your bones yeah absolutely it, I mean, that and that this is far afield, but I mean, obviously, the opioid crisis was, um, at the very least, negligent, or you know, um, uh, you know, certainly the Sackler family <laughs> had, uh, you know, no, uh, no altruistic aims there. But, uh, for people who are in constant pain, like there's, uh, you know, my father is getting older, he has back pain. And it's, you know, becoming a question in my own family, like, you know, should we seek out, you know, pain control medicine for him? Because, you know, you need to, you know, as much as like you want to avoid reliance on drugs and the issues that arise there, you also need to be able to enjoy life. If you can't go out on a walk, then you're, you're really not deriving that much enjoyment out of life. So, um, and yeah, so we, and we do see in the cowboy church that, um, Ezra is, uh, he is, you know, very much a believer in pain medication. Yeah. I think for him, it, it started out as a way to alleviate his pain primarily. And then it, like a lot of addiction addictions, uh, begin, it, it turned into it, you know, escaping everything else, including his pain. So, yeah. Yeah, the the opioid thing is is an interesting one. For uh, while I was an undergrad, I worked for a while in a pharmacy, um, on the uh, lower socioeconomic status side of town, and that was that was kind of jarring and and interesting to see is the the amount of opioids that walk out the door seemingly for people who don't need them. Is it's a, a very strange phenomenon to see the kind of the back half of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes kind of like on the same other side of the 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 horseshoe uh, with Adderall or what have you. It just makes kind of post-industrial capitalism go down easier, right? Like whether it's you know an opioid or and you know amphetamine, it just makes kind of like going to your job doing whatever it is you have to do you know it's because like these are you know to an extent um 
I mean, at least the the office, you know, the uh, the Buckman stuff is very unnatural. You're not you yeah. you're not doing that, uh, JL. You're you know um you're you have more of uh, an outdoors job from what we discussed. But yeah, like sitting in front of your computer for like seven or eight hours a day mm-hmm. doing stuff that like like okay like as I mean I suppose what I do as a lawyer is somewhat Lindy. Like that is stuff that people have been doing throughout history, for better or worse. <laughs> but uh, I mean, a lot of these jobs, and I've had jobs before I was a lawyer. It's just like mindless office work, and you, um, yeah, I can totally see how without something like to take the edge off, it's just like unbearable. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I I can't speak personally about drugs as a way to escape like in post-industrialism or whatever we want to call it, <laughs> this yeah. situation that is the 21st century. I, uh, in a former life, pre-military, I did, I did a lot of hard drugs, but that was mostly out of boredom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I can absolutely see why that would be the case for being in a shitty office job for 30 years. And yeah, I, I definitely see it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have a ton to say on kind of the drug culture of it either, but I did just have this thought now it's on the difference between the you know hard drugs that you might do out of boredom, as you said, JL, and also drugs with like a pretty similar chemical compound that are delivered a little bit differently, like op- like the opioid, you know, like um, pills. I'm not an expert on this, you know, OxyContin and all that. And, and Adderall, um, the, the difference there is kind of funny because like it's like... Uh, uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say about this. It's just, it's, it's sort of sad in a way. Like, you know, it's, you do cocaine or heroin, you know, maybe, maybe on your own, maybe at a party, whatever it's, it's to, re- to relieve boredom. But now there's these kind of insidious uh, literal encapsulations of that same sort of feeling in a way that as Dan was kind of talking about is more suited to um, working uh, a work a day life or just dealing with pain, whether that's Adderall or, you know, the pill forms of opioids It's this weird sort of, uh i mean i don't know if it's intentional but it's you know what i'm saying it's kind of funny how like it's both these like very controlled substances and also these other substances that are legal but like kind of do the same thing and i think they are used as dan said on a a much more like maintenance like making life go down easier basis as opposed to alleviating boredom there's almost something better about doing that stuff to alleviate boredom at least you kind of know what you're getting yourself into um yeah. yeah i i don't i don't i wouldn't say um, I wouldn't be quick to say that that um, evolution from from being recreational to being required to get through the day is is entirely coincidental. Right. That would be hard for me to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think so either. Uh, I, I haven't delved deep into the, like the, the Sackler files, shall we say, but it's um, definitely insidious stuff. <laughs> Dan, I think we just we wrapped up on on drugs, so we can probably okay. move on to the next topic. <laughs> Sounds um, good. We're yeah. all uh, drugged out here. I did. Um, um, I mean, you you can you can go. Uh, uh, I did want to uh, ask more about. Um, I guess Flannery O'Connor, because my my own spiel with Southern literature is, um, you know, your point in contemporary Southern literature is well taken, and we talked about it earlier how it's this you know, completely declining thing in terms of what's getting written. I also, I haven't been to college, you know, for 
I've, I've been out of college for about six years now, so I don't know this for a fact, but I have a sense that um, it's not really being discussed as much anymore on campuses. But I can say that when I was in college from 2013 to 2017, one of what actually the class that made me want to be an English major, which I guess is kind of a dubious uh, honor, but nevertheless, the class that made me want to be an English <laughs> major was a freshman writing seminar I took called um, Southern Literature. And uh, that class, I will attest, um, was very good. Uh, it was taught by a guy who writes some contemporary fiction now. I don't. I don't know if I'll name him for docs reasons, but you know, he was a very good teacher, and the syllabus was was fantastic. And it was it was a, a lot of it was Flannery O'Connor, uh, and we we discussed her in a very interesting way. We also read Faulkner, um, which was at that time that was the first time I'd ever read Faulkner. We read um, Deliverance, which I think probably has a maybe a mixed reputation in in certain Southern literature fields because. You know, the movie version obviously is responsible for a lot of stereotypes. Nevertheless, I think John Borman, I believe is his name, uh, seems like a legitimate Southern author. And I actually did like that book a lot. Uh, and we read um, we read Rocker Percy. I think that that was pretty much the main main, main line of things we read. But the point I'm trying to make is like I, that in context of I think it was 2014 that I took that course, like there really was still some good dialogue on southern literature I had a good experience in college with it and um yeah as i said earlier flary o'connor um was yeah hugely influential i guess on me as as both a writer and a reader like really opening up what a short story could do and i think she's that way for a lot of people and it wasn't just not to just go on a rant here but it wasn't actually just in that southern literature class that we read her we read her quite extensively in every creative writing class i took and i think that was standard at a certain point of time um, because she's recognized as such a master of the short story. Um, you know, she was very much one of those writers that creative writing teachers would have their, even in the MFA world, which I ha have issues with, I think at a certain point, you know, she was viewed as like sort of the gold standard. Now, I distinctly remember during the 2020 of it all, during the Floyd riots and stuff, um, some articles going after Flannery O'Connor, like we shouldn't be reading these stories with the N-word and that deal with race relations in this you know, obviously, Flannery O'Connor's not racist, but they, they're not as, like, anti-racist as would now be in vogue. Um, what am I trying to ask here? I guess just, uh, it seems to me that, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I feel like if I went, if I was in college now, I don't think um, there'd be that same level of education in Southern literature or on Flannery O'Connor. Um, so I guess I'm just lamenting that, but also wanted to kind of open it up to you to talk more about your experience sort of reading O'Connor and um I mean for me she's still really like the gold standard of of like what a short story can do uh yeah I, I would say if 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 I had to rank short story writers she would definitely be up there mm -hmm. Pro probably number one for me um it's I can't really speak to the the college portion I graduated I graduated in 20 20 sounds right. 2020. Um, just as COVID was kicking off. So I didn't walk. They had, they had a televised graduation, which was cool. So I, my name just went down the yeah. screen and I was that. Um, I never, uh, I started out as a computer science major and then I uh, transitioned to math, being a math major. So hmm. I never took a, a fiction course. I took a, a composition course, a one, and that yeah. was, that was it. So 
Well, well, hey, out of the two of us, it, I mean, that's probably a more economically good uh, way to spend your time in college, but yes. Yeah, um, but, well, I'll I'll adjust that. I took a, uh, like, literary uh, analysis course as a senior just because I needed a class, and that was one that filled the blank or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, like, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Candide. Oh, and, interesting, yeah. That's and something else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but as far as like reading other stuff that that didn't happen for me just because it didn't pertain to my degree, but I would, I would venture to say, or venture to guess that that's that, that kind of stuff is probably not being read at all, or at least uh, dramatically less. Yeah. Than that's used to be. what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because when I was in high school, you know, uh, rural uh, high school in North Florida, I'm reading, reading all of this, a lot of Faulkner, Whitman, all of this like um, Southern stuff, and it was great, and I enjoyed it. And I, I didn't, I guess I kind of took it for granted because now they're, I don't know what they're reading. Ibram Kendi, I have no idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but that, that's what I would venture to guess is that stuff is, is largely not being, yeah, not being uh, taught or even discussed for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that is, you know, not just endemic to the South. But to all literature, you know, you're you're not going to find any to you know to say nothing of whether it's right or wrong, it's it's wrong. But the uh, the the you know view on you know race and everything in America today, the kind of current year political consensus, um, you you're just not going to find that even in fiction from like 2005. You're certainly not going to find that in fiction from 1945. Uh, be it F. Scott Fitzgerald or, um, you know, William Faulkner or, you know, Flannery O'Connor. It's just, you know, you're essentially, if you're not going to, um, you know, if, if you're only going to read authors whose uh, views endorse or are, are in concordance with the current best practices on all of these matters, it's just like all of literature goes out the window and that's it's insane. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, especially for, you know, some specific reasons, I think Southern literature probably is particularly afflicted by this. So you have, you know, people like Flannery O'Connor who, you know, are, you know, not even arguably is one of the best, you know, American writers and, you know, American history. And um, yeah, you know, you have, like Matt was saying, people saying like, oh, these, you can't read this because she said that. And that's crazy. It, it seems to me that uh, a landslide you're trying to run up and then you, ju you just, it, there, there's no keeping up with it. You're going to, you're going to run out of books that have been canceled faster than quality new ones will be created. Yeah. It's, it's tiring as fuck, frankly. Yeah. And I mean, I just also... We have such, you know, the, the, the literally the entire corpus of world literature, though, you know, it has, you know, the, 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 that's where the treasures are. It's not in what's being written in like 2023. Uh, I mean, like I, you know, Nutcranker 2, of course, will be the best novel of all time. But aside <laughs> from that, aside from that, um, you know, you, you do need to look to the classics to get the uh, stuff. Absolutely.